Welcome to the New City Church Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching a message from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and the message is called A Culture of Grace. We hope you are blessed by the message today. All right, let's pray. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus. And through Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, our helper, our teacher, our comforter. Help us to hear you today. God, speak through me. Give this church ears to hear. Be glorified. Help us to walk in obedience based on what we hear. Give us faith with our hearing, Lord. And then with that faith, Lord, that we would affect the world and the people around us with the faith that you've given us. Thank you, God. Bless our time. Thank you so much for this church and for what you're doing in our church and the churches around this community that are speaking your word boldly. Help us, Lord, to continue to do so. Pray your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Oh, so good to see everybody. So good to be back. And uh, you guys, we've been blessed by two weeks of guest speakers. Both, I believe, were timely messages, wouldn't you say? Just good, good, godly brothers sharing God's word and giving us what the Lord laid on their heart. And it was evident um, that we needed to hear both of those messages, both from Craig Alsop and from Pastor Ed Moore. So if you've not listened to those and you've been absent for a while and you're not sure what's been going on here, you should go back, go to our podcast or to the, web, or to the website or YouTube and watch those, listen to those messages. You will be blessed. But today we're continuing in Matthew, back in our study, and Matthew 7 is one of great controversy, for sure, because these texts, in these six verses alone, contain some of the most misrepresented texts in all of the Bible. If you remember from several, it might have even been more like a year and a half ago, we did a series called Rightly Handling the Truth, and we picked, I believe, six phrases that generally are misquoted from the scriptures. This was one of them, at least the verse one of this chapter was in there, the idea of judging not, but we're going to get to expound on that even more today. So we have uh, this text, again, we're from the Sermon on the Mount, and what is being addressed is interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ. If you remember, the last several weeks we've been talking about the heart. Jesus is really talking about the kingdom-minded person, the heart of the person, dealing with inner things, things that happen within us. And now Jesus takes a nice focus on what is happening within the body, outward interpersonal relationships that happen. And we know this is the case because uh, he uses the word in the text, brother. That's a, that's a hint that he's saying to these disciples, this is how you treat your brothers who are in Christ, who are also disciples. So we know the context of this is really, right off the bat, we know it's about how we work with each other, how the fellow Christians treat each other. And so, as well as verse 6 instructs how believers are to handle the pearl, which I believe is the pearl of the gospel, the pearl of truth, good things that are happening within the, the body of Christ. So two of those are hints that we know this is not just talking in general about how to treat people in the world, but specifically Jesus is teaching the disciples. So first, uh, in chapter 7, um, we see a verse that is probably the most quoted text 
maybe in the entire world, potentially. Those two words, don't judge or judge not, or don't judge me, <laughs> or however you want to rephrase it, potentially the most quoted in, in the entire world. And so th- think about the last time someone said to you, don't judge me, or the Bible says, don't judge other people. Think about, maybe, you, maybe it was recent, maybe it was just this week, maybe, maybe it's been a while. Try to think about the last time either you said it, or someone said to you, don't judge me, we're not supposed to judge, the Bible says don't judge. Can you remember what you or someone else was saying that elicited that response? Think about what was said that caused that quote, or the misquote, to come out of their mouth. Was it politics? Were you telling someone your opinion or your thoughts about their vehicle choices? Unlikely. (laughs) Or maybe you were giving directions to someone who was going the wrong way. You're like, no, don't go this way. Go that way. And they're like, don't judge me. You can't tell me what to do. It, It was not those. I guarantee it was not. That's not the thing that elicits such a response. If you hear this quoted by a non-believer, generally it is quoted by non-believers, those who are outside of the faith in Christ, it's because you have spoken some truth to them about morality and the world hates the truth. And so when truth is spoken by a believer in the presence of non-believers, it's often something that elicits this idea of you're judging me. You have now become my judge. And so it's misquoted in those contexts. So the world hates the truth. What's the best thing to do if you hate the truth and you cannot ultimately deny the absolute nature of the truth? Well, you just distort it and you misapply it. If you're someone who hates the truth and you don't want the truth to apply to you, then you could take the, a verse like this and just twist it and say, well, the Bible says don't judge me, and then you're scot-free. You don't have to listen. But what you've done is you've twisted the truth, and you're now rejecting what is true, and you're guilty. You're guilty having done such a thing. How is this misunderstood, this text? I want to just explain that for a moment so that we're clear. You may already know this. But the primary misunderstanding is to believe that this is a blanket statement command. That's the primary misunderstanding. To say that this phrase in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged, is to just assume that this is a blanket command from Jesus to never discern, reprove, or correct another person ever whatsoever. It's the most common way this is taken out of context and misunderstood. We will know by the end of this sermon and by reading through the text that it is clearly not what Jesus is saying. So if you've ever had that thought or someone's ever said that to you, you should be fully equipped in your own heart, first of all, to handle this text, but then to know what is it that Jesus really meant by don't judge. What did he mean? Truth, by by definition is a straight line. It's a plumb line. Builders in the room maybe have used a plumb bob. (laughs) Any builders use plumb bobs anymore? All right, so there's a few. 
But we have laser levels, we have the, but the plumb, the line, the perfectly plumb line and standard that can only come from one place. That is the truth of God's word. That is what truth is, is a plumb straight line. And it is from a holy, intelligent, benevolent God. He is the truth. He sets the line. It is what it is. It is objective, not subjective. Quit messing with the plumb line. That's really, really what's happening. It would be as absurd as someone trying to mess with the plumb line so that in their own opinion and way, they could level the house or plumb the side of the wall, whatever you're building. It's absurd. The line is what it is, and that is the truth of God's word. So when we take anything like this or scripture and we twist it because we don't like the truth, we're messing with truth something that is clearly objective and it is plumb. But as the most or with most misunderstanding, it can often be fixed with a little bit of context. So we're just going to look at a little bit of context and it's going to come hopefully very, very, very clear. So, looking at verse 1, and two, we're going to see that this deals with what we call the, the seat of judgment or condemnation. Verses three to five deals with the hypocrisy that happens when dealing with faults within the body of Christ. And then verse six, finally, there's as a third section we see in the scripture, it deals with putting proper discernment into place or into practice toward either unbelievers or even those in the church that are acting like unbelievers. All right, so look at verse one with me. Let's read it again, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. Judge not that you be not judged. For, actually verse two again, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, the word that's used here for judge could be rendered several different ways. But based on the context and other texts that we see, we can understand that this is speaking of a seat of judgment. What this is saying is, don't take the seat of judgment. It's the seat of judgment that holds the authority to condemn somebody. That's what Jesus is specifically saying. Or to judge the heart or the, the motive of a person, which you or I cannot possibly do. So this is the seat of judgment. Who is the judge? New City Church, who's the judge? Well, you all know the answer to that. It is Jesus Christ. Who is the judge? It is Jesus. This one being who can hold such a seat of power, who can, with just a thought, see the innermost person of your heart and the motive behind every action? There's only one person who can do that. It's Jesus Christ. He has the seat of judgment. He holds that authority to condemn or to judge the motive. That is Jesus. He can pronounce judgment and condemn even to hell for all eternity. This is God. It is God who has that place of judgment. Let me just share from another extra biblical writing. It does help to sort of see the context a little bit better. This is the 1689 London Confession. It says, God has appointed a day 
wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels will be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon the earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. That is the doctrine of the judgment of God towards humanity, towards creation. That is the place of God. Romans 14.10 tells us very similarly, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That is something that all of us one day will experience. Every person, let this gravity sit on you for a moment. Every person in this room, myself included, all of us will one day be before a judgment seat that is like nothing else you've ever experienced in this life. With the true judge of the universe there, with true equity and the ability to discern, and he sees everything, that's a humbling thought that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. There is a tribunal, a judge, Father, Son, and Spirit. They agree, and there will be judgment someday. So understand that there is one judge, and that is God. This is not our place. That's what Jesus is ultimately saying. That seat is not ours. What Jesus wants us to understand is that this is how it works in the world. Those who take this seat of judgment or this seat of pronouncement to judge motives and to judge hearts within the family of God must realize that the same measure is coming back to you. That's what he's saying. Remember who has that seat. Because he's talking about measures here. Weights and balances. If you use that measure against someone else, if you take the seat of God and you pronounce condemnation or you assume that you can judge the motives of a person, remember, you've in that moment taken God's place that he alone has and the same measure is coming back to you. Be careful. Don't judge like this. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't judge this way with the measure that is from God. God alone has that seat. So those who take that seat, the same measure is coming back to you. What you sow, you shall also reap. This is ultimately, church, this is built-in accountability, isn't it? This should keep us from presuming or assuming such a seat of judgment against any brother or sister or any person at all. Because if we know that's the measure that's coming back to us, it should humble us. Keep us from elevating ourselves to a place in somebody's life where we could say, you're, you're not just wrong, you're condemned. And I know the motives of your heart. I can tell you why you did that. Only God knows that, unless the person tells you their motives. You know that? Unless the person tells you their motives, we cannot assume their motives. How many of you have fallen guilty of that sin how many parents have wrestled with the fact that you wish you knew the motives of your children and you actually didn't? I'm guilty of that. That's the seat of judgment. Motives are for God to judge. Unless you're having a conversation with somebody and they tell you their motives, we cannot assume. To do so is to be in sin. So think about what this is saying in terms of how this is misused. This is not saying to never judge the actions or words of another person. It's not what it's saying. In fact, 
this is precisely what must be done in the ministry of discipleship and accountability against sin. We must have some way of discerning or judging actions. How unloving is it to simply let someone live outside the revealed and written will of God? It's so unloving. To never say to anybody, you're wrong, would be another way of disobedience. It would be unloving to let someone walk outside of God's will. How we must truly hate a person if we're unwilling to warn them of what can and will destroy them. It must be done. And all of this can be done without taking the judgment seat. That's the line, brothers and sisters. To do all of that by keeping each other accountable, warning each other from sin, and never using the measure that God alone is given to use or has to use. The measure of perfect righteousness and holiness and the ability to see all. So here's the word of a, for us concerning this part of our text. This is the word for us. Attitudes of condemnation toward brothers and sisters in the church will kill a culture of grace. Because there has to be grace amongst us. And if we presume or take these roles or these places of condemnation as we keep each other accountable and we call each other away from sin, we're moving into this area of condemnation and we've left the culture of grace. I believe we have a culture of grace at New City Church. I believe we do. By God's grace alone, we have that. And we see that in our ability to call each other away from sin in humility while that person who's doing that calling is humbling themselves and saying, I've dealt with this before, brother, sister. I've, I've also walked this path. I need God's help too. That's how it must be done. Now, this could be the, the negative lens that you may be constantly looking through. This could be acting like you can see a person's motive when you've asked them why they did what they did. These are ways that you can kill a culture of grace. Looking negatively constantly through that lens. Looking at somebody like you know their motive, motives and presuming. Which begins as an action, or excuse me, what begins as an action you disagree with somehow moves to a position of you holding the gavel in your hand and pronouncing someone with a sentence. Where is the grace in that? So we need grace, brothers and sisters. Jesus shows us with his life that grace is more powerful to change a sinner than condemnation ever was. He shows that with his life. Look at the people as you read scripture that he interacts with that any one of us would have condemned a long time ago, walked away from, not worth it. Jesus dealt with, handled, loved, kept people in his presence, completely blew out all the cultural expectations and said, because of grace, I will not condemn you. I'm gonna show you mercy. I forgive you. Yes, you deserve judgment, but I'm gonna forgive you. I love you. And Jesus shows us that over and over again. Remember the woman caught in adultery? That is a perfect scenario that paints a picture for this text for us. Do you remember what happened? Her accusers stood all around her. They all held that gavel of final pronouncement and condemnation in their hand. Guilty, judged, she's a sinner, stone her. They took the seat of judgment. 
Jesus was there in the middle of them and he begins to write in the sand. Do you remember the story? He starts writing in the sand. There's a little mist. We don't know what he wrote. Most people, a lot of people say, well, he's probably listing out their sins as he begins to say these words, he who is without sin cast the first stone. What happened in that moment? Do you remember? Her accusers began to leave. Why? Why did they all leave one by one? Because sinners do not have the right to judge and condemn sinners. Sinners don't have the right to judge and condemn other sinners. Only Jesus has that place. And be sure, he does have that place. Who was left with the woman caught in adultery after they all left? Jesus. Why? Because he has that seat. But guess what? Guess what's different about Jesus? And amazing about this story even though he has that place, what is most amazing is that he did not cast the stone, but he showed mercy. They could not cast the stone because they had sinned. Love, grace, and forgiveness is what Jesus chose to give, though he was the only one with the right to cast the stone and to condemn her according to the law. The law had said, adulterers could be stoned. What did Jesus do? He didn't just overlook the law. He didn't say it's no longer good. What did he do? His love, his ability to forgive made her guiltless before the law. Jesus was enacting grace. I forgive you. What you've done is real. I could condemn you and judge you, his mercy was shown so clear. Is that not, I would love, and I have, by faith, stood in that very place, and many of you have as well, where you know your guilt is real, and you need, and you deserve the judgment of God. But Christ stands in the midst, and all of your accusers are gone. So much grace. Instead of bringing the justice that she deserved from the law, he forgave her sin and did not condemn her. That's the power of grace. And that's what we need in this church. That's what we need to continually happen, a culture of grace. So in, if in light of this knowledge, we continue to use the scales of perfection and holiness to judge others, forgetful of God's grace, we place our own righteousness on those scales. And guess what? We don't have any of our own righteousness. It doesn't work that way. Now, this is not saying don't judge, period. It's saying be sure to judge rightly. So as we live with one another and grow as a church, there will undoubtedly be times when we notice the faults of others. So now we're going to move into the next verses because we have to be able to deal with each other's faults without taking the seat of judgment. So look at verse 3 to 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice what he tells us to think concerning the faults in ourselves. He tells us to think about the faults in ourselves as logs and beams. 
What does he tell us to think about the faults in others? Specks and sawdust. These were real things that in that culture they would be able to relate to. There were woodworking shops all around. Jesus is literally speaking of a massive carrying beam that would have been in homes in these days. You builders or those who have seen buildings being done with that carrying beam going all the way across, it's big. It was bigger then. We're talking sometimes five by four feet, these massive, massive carrying beams. That's what Jesus is referring to when he says to think about your own faults. And then for the others, it's the speck. It's the speck in their eye. That's what he tells us to do. Now, he asks the simple question, why do you see the speck but miss the log? Think about that for a moment. Why do you see the speck in everybody else but you miss the massive carrying beam coming out of your own head? That's pretty absurd. It's kind of comical. If you think about it, feel free. Put the picture in your mind. It's pretty funny. A log coming out of somebody's face. It sounds kind of painful too. But it is also kind of funny. Some people are speck hunters. Some people are speck hunters. It might be you, and you may need to repent of that today because you're just looking for people's specks. Eye inspectors. So what's the hypocrisy in this? Always quick to fix the other person slow to correct what is wrong in your own life. That's the hypocrisy. You're quick to find the speck and you miss the log coming out of your own head. It's interesting to think about this analogy that Jesus uses because the eye, we know, is incredibly important to the body. The fact that he says this is like a speck in somebody's eye. It's not a particularly strong member. I don't take much pride in the strength of my eyes. You know, there's not much muscle there. They're pretty, it's delicate. It's something that needs to be taken care of. If you've ever gotten something lodged in your eye, it takes only the smallest speck to ruin your life, your day. It's amazing, is it not? Something so small and you go, that's you know, you're like, that's what it was? I couldn't walk. <laughs> but that's how delicate this is. What do you need in that moment when you have a speck in your eye? What is it that you truly need? You need someone with good vision to help you. If you're going to get it out, in which I'm sure you've done this before, you go in this awkward, and you're like, can you see something? And you open your eye up, and it's like, oh, that looks really bad and nasty to see all of your eyeball in there. But you need somebody that loves you, that can see clearly, and help you get the speck out of your eye. Have you been there before physically? That's happened to you before? It's happened to me a couple times. That's the analogy that Jesus is drawing. Can someone help me get this back out of my eye, please? Then you see someone come around the corner with a beam so large coming out of their face that it's knocking everybody else down. And they're like, I got you. I will, I will help you. Who, who are you going, who do you want helping you with the specks in your, there's, there's an assumption here that we all know we have a speck in our eye. That's a given. The lesson here is who's gonna help? How do you see yourself? 
That's the foolishness that you need to see with this picture. The perspective Jesus is asking us to consider is being that person with the beam. And how do we become those people? We have all been those people with the beam coming out of our eye, trying to help somebody else. Never examine your heart against God's word. That's one way. Never examine your own heart against God's word and you will undoubtedly become that person with a beam in your eye trying to fix everybody else. If you are a person who claims to be a Christian and you are not in God's word on a regular basis, not only are you ruining, you're ruining your own life, you are not feeding yourself on the, the bread of God's word so you're malnourished, you can't lead your family let alone help the church to grow and be more like Jesus. You cannot be a productive member of the body of Christ if you don't see yourself clearly enough to then be able to help other people. And what is discipleship? Helping others follow Jesus. You need that. So that's one way. Never compare yourself. Look at the word of God and compare your life, your heart against God's word. Never turn from your own sin. Or run to God for forgiveness. Never do those things and you will become this person. You will be perpetually this person if you never turn from your own sin. Never remove what is lodged in your own spiritual eye, but acting like an expert optometrist. You, you are experts at everybody else's eyes, but you are malpracticed in your own eyes. And everybody can see it. Everybody can see it. Quite a foolish picture if you think about it. Here's the reality. There is a form of judgment that is pleasing to the Lord within the church, and this is not it. See how he's correcting judgment? He's not saying don't judge at all. He's saying don't judge like this. Don't judge with the measure that only God can, and don't be a hypocrite in your judgments. Don't do it like this. We need to be followers of Jesus with clear vision ourselves first. That's what we need to be. We get this by rightly seeing God as judge. That's why verse one and two came first. Because we look at God and we see he is the judge. He can see everything in my life. He sees me clearly. So we look at him as judge. We fear him with the awe and the respect that is due to him. It's a healthy fear. It's a respectful and awful fear. Full of awe for the one who actually has the judgment seat. We look at him that way. And we do this by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Have you ever noticed what that scripture says? Listen to this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. You guys know what it means to admonish, right? To warn somebody. We are called to warn each other. We're called to teach and warn each other in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. It is the word richly dwelling in us that shows us our need, that shows us our God, points us to him, and then shows us the grace that we need for other people. Only as the word of Christ dwells in us richly. The grace of God teaches us to admonish one another, but first it must admonish us. The word of God must be our admonisher that warns us, teaches us, comforts us. It's to warn, 
to urge someone to avoid something that they're running into. You see what's happening? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Admonish yourself first. Let God's word do that. There's no doubt that we all have specks in our eyes this morning. You should probably just acknowledge that and just be willing and be okay. I've got a speck in my eye. Now, don't start looking at each other's eyes awkwardly. There's specks there, but there's spiritual specks. There's things wrong with us. We, we are being sanctified. We are not fully there yet. We Give us a break, right? Like there's specks in our eyes because we're not in heaven yet. That's the reality. We need others to help us see these sometimes. And now, hopefully, God's word is illuminating some unclear vision that you have. Maybe you're not trusting God or you're mishandling your money. Maybe those are the specs. You're not stewarding your time well. That's a speck. You're being lazy about life. You're, maybe you're not parenting well. Maybe you are completely shirking responsibilities as a parent. Maybe you're a horrible employer or employee and you, you shoot off at the hip and you're, and you're angry all the time. These are specks. These are things that you're, you're claiming to be a Christian, but you have a speck in your eye. And you need somebody around you to tell you, hey, this is wrong. But you need to do it, somebody to do it in a way that they have clear vision. You don't have the most angry person who just came out of anger management saying to you, hey, you got to stop being angry. You, you got the dude that's got the biggest beam coming out of his face, and he's the one correcting you. We, don't, we want humility. I think mishandling our time is, is one of the biggest things and I'm sort of, this sort of confession, it's one of the biggest things that I, if you guys know me, that's when somebody says, how can I pray for you? It's probably the one thing that comes out of my mouth the most. Help, God, I, help me to handle my time well. Help me to manage my time, to be honoring to you and, and stewarding what I have. I think that could be a common speck. If I said to someone else, hey, you're really blowing it with time management and staying focused on your mission, but I fail to self-examine, I'd be that hypocrite. I would be walking in what Jesus is warning me not to do. But I want to be able to be that person, and so do you, that's able to correct. So what's the idea here? Here, sound like Boston accent for a second. <laughs> the idea is we need to correct people, but self-examine first. I think I'm making that point. So, many of you know that this is an issue in your own life and we need the word of God to illuminate and correct it today. What do we not need is for such a delicate thing as an eye operation to be handled by people with hypocritical beams in their own eyes trying to fix everyone else. The best case scenario, there's a culture of grace here. Best case scenario, we are, all of us, removing beams all the time. Checking for specks in ourselves first. Do you guys hear that noise? Yeah, it's either, there's either a backhoe back there, like about to knock the building down early, or something else is going on. Yeah, just kill the sound system. I'll yell if I need to. I don't care. All right. I'm going to keep moving like nothing's happening. So, 
look at verse 6 with me. We're going to move on. Verse 6 of chapter 7. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So, thanks, Josh. Woo! That's right. It's the body of Christ in action right there. So, do not give the dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So, did you catch what just was said? Think about this in the context of everything we've just learned. Jesus is talking about judgment. He's talking about how not to judge. And he's talking about how to discern. Notice what just happens. Jesus said that there are people in this world who, in their treatment and response to what is given them, are compared to pigs and dogs. What just happened? Judgment. Discernment. Measuring fruit. If you're going to determine whether someone's a pig or a dog based on their response to the gospel, if this is going to be put into practice at all, clearly Jesus says, have discernment. You can't have discernment at the same time have Jesus say, there are some people that you need to discern whether they're pigs and dogs so you don't cast pearls before them and so you don't give them what is holy. So you can see in the context that this is a whole rounded picture of what right judgment is. Two behaviors to watch for. This is what he says in the text, verse 6. Those who attack you and those who trample. Those are the two behaviors. Those who attack and those who trample. What are they trampling and attacking? Scripture says, that which is holy and pearls. There's attacking and there's trampling. We're not talking about here your lovely domesticated pets at home. So you think, well, my dog doesn't do that. Well, in ancient Israel, dogs roamed the streets. It wasn't as common to have domesticated pets. There were around. But these were talk we're talking about street dogs, manged and untrained. They they would attack and kill people. These are not your lovely household pets. And so you wouldn't give one of those dogs something that is holy. Or more precisely, you would not Give them something so precious as your time. If there were a dog that were about to attack you, you would probably, well, well around here you might shoot it, I guess. I don't know. Or, but you might want to leave. You don't hang around and invest time into a dog that is just attacking. You, you leave, right? And so we start to see that there is this analogy being drawn. And it really does begin to make a lot of sense. When it comes to the pigs, I, I'm not a pig guy. I, I mean, I don't know. Pigs, there's some farmers in this building probably. You could tell me about your pigs, but I don't think any of them care about pearls. None. You like toss a pearl and they're all just like, whoop, that's nice. They, they won't do that. They're like trampling everything and all of a sudden there's a pearl in the pig pen and they stop everything to keep it safe. It's not what happens. You see the analogy, it begins to make sense. You can tell a pig all you want that a pearl is valuable. Now, you can even say to them, hey, 
pig. Now, this is a fact that I just learned. Maybe you already knew this. One in 10,000 oysters truly create a pearl of great price. One in 10,000. It's rare. That's why they're valuable. That's why they're precious. But a pig doesn't care. They're like, I don't care if it's one in 10 million. It's not valuable to me. It does not matter. To a pig, it's still perfect for trampling along with the rest of the filth that's under its feet. No discernment there. What's the point? Remember the context is about correcting people in the church. First thing about that in the context. It's about correcting people in the church. Jesus moves into verse six, right from verse one through five. And we already knew the context. So Christ very likely may be saying that we need, we need to discern in the local body those who are being hypocritical in their correcting and that these should not be offered the same precious pearls as everybody else. Who are the people in the midst that are being hypocritical, that are living like hypocrites? They're not correcting well. It may be that Jesus is saying they don't deserve the pearls. They don't deserve the same time. So this could be a form of church discipline in one sense. So the context of the greater teaching that we've been looking at is hypocrisy. Christ may be saying that we should look and see a brother or sister who will not respond to loving correction. You may need to pull back and wait for a season. They're not responding to the correction that Jesus just gave. Here, this is how you correct others. So we try to correct others and they're not responding. It might be that Jesus is saying, you need to pull back for a season. You've all recognized that. I've had times of counsel, had people say to me, hey, how long do I hang on with this person who's mistreating me? I know it's a reality in your lives. We have to discern. But it may be that that's the case as well. A common interpretation of this is in the treatment of unbelievers who are hostile to the kingdom. I think that's probably the most common interpretation. What do we say when we say don't cast your pearls before swine? We're usually saying how long should you share the gospel with this person who's not listening? That could also be a very good interpretation. It could be that Jesus has all three of these in mind. Those who are hostile to the kingdom and to Christians and to the gospel. I think we can look at all of these and say this is a likely scenario. We need discernment. What investment of time and energy should be given to those who trample the gospel? If you have somebody in your life that you're telling the gospel to, you're, you're seeking to love them, but they are literally trampling it. They hate you and they hate what you're saying. How much time and investment should be given to that person who is hating and trampling the pearl of the gospel, the precious, valuable gospel? Not only that, but you and your time. To bring that gospel, be discerning and know that you can leave it with God. If you have to leave somebody for a season or stop a season of sharing or ministering to somebody, you can leave that with God. Be sure that you are also giving the gospel to people, or excuse me, be sure that you are also giving um, the gospel to people that God is preparing to actually receive it. Because God has people around you that he is preparing to receive the gospel and will not trample it underfoot. I know a lot of you, you just like the difficult cases. You just want to hang around with the people that hate you. And you want to hang around with the people that don't want to hear it. There is something in here for that. That Christians need to be discerning 
about what they spend their time doing. You might have a season where you're talking to a non-believer and you're just like, I, I think I'm in their life for a while. There may come a time where you have to say, I'm going to go spend these 10 hours a week that I've been trampled underfoot and I'm going to ask God to bring some people into my life that he's preparing to receive the gospel. And sometimes you need that. You need that encouragement, don't you? To not just constantly be trampled. So there's wisdom in there for the evangelists, those people who like to be out on the streets and share the gospel. That's a, that's, we need to do that. But you also need to be sharing and investing in people's lives that want to hear it too. And God is preparing people. And that's only for us. That takes discernment for us. God knows those people. He knows where they are. We need the discernment. Here's the conclusion. We as followers of Christ have been given something extremely valuable, and that is the gospel. We've been given the gospel. It's the news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how he saved us and how he's keeping us, not by our own holiness or by, his, or by our grace, but by his grace. That's valuable. That's precious. This faith has made us a family. That's valuable. That's extremely precious. We are a family. We are brothers and sisters together, and we need loving correction in our family. Every family needs loving, faithful correction within it. We need a culture of forgiveness and grace. We need that. Why? Because it's such a valuable pearl. It's so valuable. And so we spend our time investing in it and we are careful with it. Many things can mess up a church family. There's so many things that can mess up a culture of grace. And at the top of the list is hypocrites who correct others and never correct themselves. A church full of hypocrites will completely dismantle a church and kill it. Whether it's in leadership or it's just in the membership, hypocrisy is leaven and it spreads and it is nasty. It's gross. It'll kill. So we need to be careful. We need to be discerning. This is those people who take the judgment, the judgment seat that does not belong to them. And those who, like dogs and pigs, do not value the precious pearl of correction anymore at all. So if you're that person and you're in this church and you have stopped loving and valuing the correction from other brothers and sisters, if you are in that place or you're even inching close to that place, like, I don't want to hear another correction from anybody ever again, you're in a bad spot. You're in a bad, go to God's word. Let him reveal what is unholy in you. Repent, confess to him. Let him clean your life with his word and with his Holy Spirit and come in and be a productive member of the body of Christ. Giving of your time and also letting others speak into your life. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart this morning by his word. Ask him to do that. Think about these few questions and then we're gonna close and have communion together. Are you contributing in this church to a culture of grace? Are you, right now, as a member of this church, are you contributing to a culture of grace or are you tearing it down? If you were to be multiplied 10 times over in your current spiritual discipline and attitude towards the body, would this church survive? <laughs> would it thrive? Would it be fruitful? Or would it kill the church if you were multiplied 10 times over. Think about that. We are a church that's supposed to multiply. What are we multiplying? What pearls do you need to withhold from someone? That's another question you should be asking. 
Maybe there's something in your life and you just need God to give you that wisdom today. What pearls do you need to withhold from someone? Maybe even just for a season. What correction do you need? Is there a log in your eye that you need, or excuse me, that you've been hurting others with? Is there a log of hypocrisy in your eye that you've been hurting others with while you make a big deal about the specks in other people's eyes? If that's the case, then you and I, each of us, if the Holy Spirit is bringing a place of conviction upon you, then you need to repent of that today and ask God to take that from you and and forgive you and give you his spirit of grace for brothers and sisters around you. Let's remember of of all of this to self-examine and to stay humble in how we handle and deal with other people in the church. Amen, brothers and sisters? We can do this. God can give us the grace to do this. I believe we have this momentum going as a church, but only by his grace. And if we remain humble, will this continue and will we multiply good things in this church? And as we plant more churches, we'll send out more people, more churches like this with a culture of grace. Let's ask the Lord to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And um, we're just grateful, God, that you, by your grace, you point out the things in our heart that need to be corrected. Make us a correctable people. And may we never take the judgment seat thinking we can discern motives. Forgive us, God, for ever stepping into that place. If there's people in this room, brothers and sisters, right now who have logs in their eyes, they are those speck hunters. They're always correcting but never self-examining. Please, God, convict of sin. May they come to you today and humbly and re- with repentance in their hearts. Remove this, the stoniness of, the, of a heart like that and bring, bring restoration. God, would you please help this church to continue to be a culture of grace? That we would be like Christ in the scenario with the, the woman caught in adultery, not casting stones, but showing grace. Give us discernment with people within and outside of the body. What, is the, what are those precious things, those pearls, those holy things that maybe we are investing too much time in a certain area? We know you told your disciples, if a household does not receive you, wipe the dust from your feet and move on. We know we have permission to do this, but give us discernment, Lord. Show us as a body how to be, how to be better at this. And help us to lean into your grace. Remember that we only exist and have eternal life because you are a gracious, forgiving God. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his blood that washes us, cleanses us from hypocrisy, gives us a clean conscience, forgives our sins. Thank you. Thank you for giving us your righteousness. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Bless us now as we continue to examine ourselves and remember what you've done for us. Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the New City Church podcast. For more content from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms, or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at www.bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next episode.